Good morning. It's nice to see all of you this morning. Wanna, before, I, before I open up God's Word, I want to thank all of those that have spoken over the summer, Will and um, Phil. Uh, Phil and Rhoda celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary yesterday. So congratulations for 50 years. Jeff Franzian, Joe Gerber. Next week, we, uh, our interim pastor gets here. And the truth is, if somebody would have asked me, who would you like as your interim pastor for the next year, out of everybody in the whole world, it would have come down to two, two people. It would have come down to uh, Rob Rayburn, who was with us for a month this summer, and who will be back with us occasionally, and then, and then Mike Kelly. And Mike Kelly is going to be our interim pastor, and he's going to start a series for the fall next week on the gospel according to Joseph, going through Joseph's life in, in the book of Genesis. Time flies. It just seems uh, 13 weeks ago we were opening up the book of Galatians, and here we are. This is our last sermon from the book of Galatians. And remember that this is probably the first book written in the New Testament, and it was written to an embryonic church, the first Asian church in uh, Christianity. And this book is arguably one of the most important books in Western civilization. You remember uh, that Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, he, 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 he married a woman, and they had a nice marriage. Her name was Katharina. And Martin Luther said that in the Bible, Galatians is my Katharina. The Wesley brothers and the beginning of the Great Awakening happened when they heard just the introduction of Galatians, the commentary by Luther. They heard that and they wrote that our hearts were strangely warmed by this. And now we come to the home stretch, chapter 6. And he basically says something like this You've been starting on a journey, and. Uh, on the journey, there's some things that you need to know. And so much of these verses are about the realistic aspect of the Christian experience. He, he begins by talking about what happens if you're caught in sin. And then he says, be careful uh, that you don't fall into that same, same sin. And then he says, bear each other's burdens. He assumes difficulties. Uh, be careful if, if you go to a church or there's a cult that says, take this pill, follow this rule, and everything will be okay. Because what the gospel says is, here is a new life that makes you ready for the streams of sorrow that are going to follow you the rest of your life. And we saw last Sunday that only Christ can redeem the hard things in our lives, these burdens that we have to carry. But there are so many things in these first six verses to look at that I've decided to look at just one, one thing, one command. And it's actually found, if you could look again, in verse number one. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. There are really some surprising things that come from this verse that you don't see by just reading it in English. Beginning with the idea of being caught in sin, the term being caught in sin 
probably doesn't mean what you think that it does. We might think that somebody who is caught in sin is that they're sneaking around and, and they get caught or they're stealing and somebody comes in and turns on the light and they are caught or there's an alcoholic, he, she, he drinks too much and uh, they've been hiding a bottle and it's found out and so they're caught in that. A, a spouse is caught in unfaithfulness. And many stories in our day, because of the new technologies, talk about people, big stars, who are caught because of technology, right? Texts. Ah, I saw that text. Oh, I saw that website uh, that you visited. I saw that email that you sent. And so we think of people getting caught uh, that way. We say they got caught. But that's not what Paul is speaking here about. What he means here is if someone is unaware that they are ensnared by a particular sin. They don't know it. They don't know it. Most people who drink too much, you shouldn't have that third glass, fourth glass, fifth glass of wine. Most people who drink too much pretty much know, you know what, I probably drink too much. Most people who violate their consciences, they know usually that they are doing something wrong. But what Paul is talking about here is when somebody is ensnared by something that they don't even know that they're ensnared by it. I am a Chinese historian, and at the beginning of the 20th century, China was not doing very well. This great civilization of 5,000 years was basically the, uh, the sick man of the world. They War after war they lost. And one of the philosophers in China at the beginning of the 20th century was a great writer named Lu Xun. And Lu Xun says, this is kind of how I see China. It's like this parable. That there's a whole bunch of people and they're sleeping in this iron room. And one of them wakes up. And they walk around the room and they find out that there's actually absolutely no way to get out and there's no oxygen coming in. And so the dilemma is, should I just let all these people sleep and die slowly or should I wake them up to tell them, hey, we're all going to die because we're in this iron box and there's no way out? And he decides, well, the best thing to do is just let people go on and, and sleep. Now, Christians, and I'm talking to Christians here. I'll talk to non-Christians here in a minute. But Christians, let me ask you a question. And I don't want you to answer it out loud, but I want you to think about it. What do you think your biggest sin is? What do you think your besetting sin is? What causes you shame when you think of it? What addiction are you caught in? Some of us... It comes to us like that. Some of us, we're still thinking. What if that is not actually your greatest sin? What if that is not the sin that you are caught in because you're aware of it? C.S. Lewis says that when it comes time to confess our sins, many of us run to the things that are most obvious to us. Binge eating, laziness. At the university, I often have young men come into my 
office who have raging hormones and uh, they think every, their, their biggest sin is related to, to sex. I remember one young man said, you mean there's seven deadly sins? What are the other six? <laughs> but I like what C.S. Lewis said where he says, the sins of the flesh are like flea bites compared to the sins that we are caught in and we're unaware of. When we're aware of our sin, there's something we can do about it. When we aren't aware, when we're like those sleeping people and oxygen is going to be gone, we don't even know the danger that we're in. And Paul says here, we must help each other when somebody is caught in sin. Now first, I want you to note here, Paul doesn't say that he wants us to become the spiritual police where we go around pointing out every sin that we see. Remember that love covers over a multitude of sin. There is nothing that will more quickly kill a relationship or a church than a critical spirit. And it's particularly dangerous for those of us that love theology. We are often aware when we get up to preach that there are people out there and what they're waiting to hear is a mistake that we make when we speak or when they read a book they read it to see the errors you, you know what it's like to be in a room where you're constantly being judged it's horrible it's absolutely horrible to be in a room where you're constantly judged and Paul's not talking about us going around trying to uncover point out sins to everything He's talking here about somebody who is caught in a repeated sin, something that is ongoing and, un- and you're unaware of. And I'll get back to this in just a minute. But I want to ask you a question. Are you in a relationship like that um, where somebody can know you so well that they say, you're caught here and I want to help you? I talked to you married couples for a few minutes. Do you have a marriage such that you ask your spouse occasionally, tell me what you see that I can't? Do you have that kind of love? Tell me what you see that's going on in my life because I'm, I'm blinded. I can't, I can't see. Also, helping somebody caught in a sin is largely done between brothers and sisters in Christ. We, Paul's not telling us that we do this to non-Christians. If you do this to a non-Christian, if you go to a non-Christian and say, hey, you're caught in the sin, you may not know it, but let me tell you, they're going to get this idea that Christianity is a basic set of rules that we have to follow. You have to follow these commands. Certainly one of my heroes is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh preacher in the 20th century. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about to us Christians, how we should deal with non-Christians. And if you're a non-Christian, please listen to these words. Christianity, he writes, is primarily not a teaching. It is not a philosophy. 
It is not even a way of life. It is before everything else a relationship to a person. The New Testament, in a sense, will not even discuss with us the kind of life we are going to live until we have come to a satisfactory answer about him, about Jesus. All along, the Bible shuts us down to this one matter and holds us up against this one thing. It refuses to even discuss our questions, our problems, or how to live until we answer the question, what have you made of Jesus? If you're not a Christian, you don't begin by saying, well, well, will I have to give this up? Will I have to live this way? Do I have to stop doing this? Do I have to start doing that? Do I have to go to church on Sundays? If you're asking those questions, you've been misled about what Christianity is. Christianity means that there's an absolute new center of your solar system, that you have a new king, a gracious king, but life is about him, not about you. What he says is a abundant life. If you look at verse 1 again, there's also a misleading phrase where Paul says, those of you who live by the Spirit. If you have a King James or an ESV, English Standard Version, I think it's translated better there, where it says, those of you who are spiritual need to help those that are caught in sin. And when you read that, you're like, oh man, I'm off the hook because I've only been a Christian for one year or 17 years, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not one of those spiritual people. Actually, what Paul means here when he talks about those of you who are spiritual or who live by the Spirit, that's another word for saying every single Christian. Because every Christian has the Spirit of Christ living in them. If you're a new Christian, it's the Spirit that helps us in every area of life. If you've been a Christian for 70 years, it's, it's the Spirit in us. Remember that phrase by the great writer of Amazing Grace, John Newton, when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. That's us, isn't it, oftentimes? Even in our prayers, we're lisping and we're stammering. I have students who come to my office who want to talk about the gospel to their fellow students, and they say, but, but Dr. Woods, I'm, you know, I, I don't know the right words. I, I, haven't, I haven't been to seminary. I don't know the right words to say. I have a lisping and stammering tongue, and I want to tell them, when you open your mouth and tell the gospel, all the power of the Godhead is behind your words because the Spirit of Christ is in us. See how we are supposed to help those who are caught in sin. He says to do this gently. And I like what it says in verse number 3. If you, if you think that you're better than these people, you think that you're something, then, then Paul says, actually, you're nothing if you think that you're better than somebody else. You go to somebody, and perhaps they're caught in the sin of not treating their spouse properly. You don't go to them and say, well, look at me. Look at how I treat my spouse. No, we don't do that. None of us husbands love our wives like Christ loves the church. You don't go to somebody and say, let me tell you about your blind spot because I don't have any. You know, people can smell arrogance a hundred miles away. They can smell anger and non-graciousness. 
I also want you to know that Paul isn't ending Galatians chapter 6 by saying, here's a suggestion for you. This is a command. This is a command that we are supposed to do. But there are some things in our culture that I think makes it harder for all saints, for the modern church, to obey this command than it was for those who originally got this letter. Because the Galatian Christians lived what I would call very, very thick lives. What I mean is that their houses, if you look at the archaeology, their houses were right next to each other. They were almost like in a walled compound. They were always together. They were always working together. Their houses were abutted to each other. They really couldn't hide. They could look at somebody and they could see you know, this person is caught in sin because I work with him every day. I see her every day, and she doesn't know it. They were what I would call interdependent, which is exactly what we try to avoid in this country and in the West. The very foundation of our country is independence. And we are never going to obey Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 until we become interdependent. Is anything wrong with loving independence? No, I'd rather live in this country than any other country in the world. But I think our idea of independence can seep into the Christian life and it becomes an idol. When Paul says in verse 1, you should restore him, that word restore is a medical term. It's a term that is used to um, take a dislocated bone and put it back in place. We often think that sin in our lives is like a bullet that comes from outside of us or like a splinter. But what Paul is saying here when he says that it's like a bone out of joint is that it is something inside of us. It is something that is perhaps really good, but it has become something that is out of kilter in our lives. Something good that has taken the place of the centrality of Jesus and the gospel in our lives. Economic security. Our family our job, our children. Matt Chandler, somebody who I really enjoy listening to, a Southern Baptist preacher in Dallas, uh, said, and he had, he had a church of like 10,000 people, and he's, he's made all the churches go independent, so he now just has a couple thousand, I believe. But he said that the Pew, Chair, the Pew Trust has come out with this um, statistic after 15 months of COVID in the evangelical church. Over the last 15 months, one-third of Christians who were attending church are no longer attending church. One-third of the Christians left their church because they went to a church not for theological reasons, but for ideological reasons. And one-third of the church has hunkered down and said, we're going to be here. 
You know, if, if Jesus Christ, when he came here, the, the right hated him and the left hated him. And if he would come back today, the left would hate him and the right would hate him. What Paul is saying is what binds us together isn't an ideology. It's not this love of independence. It's this interdependence with Jesus Christ in the middle of all things. But oftentimes the Christian life is you live your life, I'll live mine. Maybe I'll see you once every month or so when I come to church. Rather than committing to each other to live thick lives, to be in each other's life, to bear each other's burden. From the earliest days of the Christian church, it was said that no one has God as his or her father who does not have the church as his mother. That sure doesn't sound like 21st century evangelicalism. And I love Sunday mornings. I, I don't know how some people make it by coming uh, every once in a while to church because I I need the sacrament every Sunday morning. I need you every Sunday morning. And there's a convergence that's taking place. I know that you see four walls here in this beautiful gym and you have a ceiling. We're actually in the presence of Christ right now. But we're not called to be lone rangers and, and come on Sunday morning and then, and then that's it. The rest of the week, we're independent Christians. We're to practice what we might call radical hospitality. And that's what will change this society. That's what will change our culture that is in love with independence. Three very quick experiences. Stick with me here. Just let me tell you a few things that changed our lives. Because of my job, I've had to move every once in a while. And um, some of you have heard this story. One of the places I had to move, it was really hard to do, but I had to move to Hawaii. And uh, we were at the University of Hawaii for a while. And the first Sunday that we were at this church, and it wasn't a Presbyterian church, so that might give you a clue, um, five people came up to us and said, do you want to join us for lunch? We, we see that you're visiting here. You want to join us for lunch? And we took the first invitation that we had, and we went to this uh, single woman's apartment. Um, this was in Oahu, where UH was at. She said, I'm sorry I don't have enough chairs. Do you mind sitting on the floor while we have lunch together? And I was like, here's somebody who just loves Christ so much that she doesn't have to have this huge spread for us or even chairs. And we tried to keep telling these people at Honolulu Bible Church, we kept trying to tell them, look, we are only going to be here for a couple of months. It didn't, there wasn't a Sunday that went by that they didn't say, come on, come on over to our house. Be part of our lives. And then about 15 years later, I worked for a year for the University of Indiana and we went to Indianapolis, and uh, I had to go before, before Karen. And uh, Karen, knowing me, said, Now, Shelton, don't go to one church and say, This is the church. I want you, let, let's look around at different churches. And I said, Okay. And so I went to, um, of course, a, a, a sister church, a PCA church, Redeemer Presbyterian, Jason Dorsey who's now in our Presbyterian pastor here, was the pastor of Redeemer. It was a pretty large church. 
But I had, by that time, I had been an elder almost 15 or 20 years, and I wanted to go to a church, and I wanted to sit on the back row, and I wanted to go and get filled up and leave for one year. Please, just one year. I walk through the door, and somebody says, who are you? And I say, well, I'm, I'm Shelton Woods. I'm uh, working kind of as a vice president for uh, University of Indiana. Oh, you are. Let me, let me connect you with this person. And then this person connects me with this person. Before I know it, I'm eating lunch with somebody that day. I called Karen on the telephone that afternoon. I said, I found the church. She said, I knew you'd do that. <laughs> but she went to that church just one Sunday, and she said, this is it. They're pra- practicing radical hospitality here. They want you in their lives. And again, we kept telling them, I'm only here for a year. It didn't matter to them. And then here at, at All Saints, I'm part of two community groups. I have my brother and sister, John and Marcio, back there who open their homes to us every month. And we go after Sunday and we have a meal with brothers and sisters. And that's very helpful to help share each other's burdens. But then there's this other thing. For more than eight years, there are five men who have met six of us all together. We have met every Tuesday morning at six o'clock in the morning for the last eight years, all but just a handful of Tuesdays. And we don't meet and read Calvin's Institutes or another Bible study on the book of James. For eight years, we have met every Tuesday morning with the guarantee that we are completely transparent with each other, that there's nothing that's going to come out at the university about me or in the newspapers that they don't already know, where we share each other's sorrows, where we cry together and laugh together, And then after about 40, 45 minutes, each of us pray together for each other. That allows us to see who's caught in a sin and they don't know it. You can't get to that without that. Is there sacrifice? Yeah. Waking up at 4.30 every Tuesday morning for eight years, not being able to go into work when I want to go into work early to get stuff done, but that has changed my life. And some of those men are in this room and they have changed my life. If we want to obey Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, are you going to get into a relationship like that? Are you willing to? That's what we're going to be talking about in terms of our community groups. Maybe we start with small steps. Maybe we start saying, well, maybe once a month I'll have somebody over to my house. And then there's this final thing here. If you begin to look and study God, you'll begin to understand how important this is of being interdependent because that is what the Trinity is. The Trinity is interdependent. There's this beautiful dance that's going on. God the Father was not able to die on the cross. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross, but Jesus did. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. 
God the Father sends Jesus. It's this beautiful dance of interdependence. And when God created the universe, you can look at those stories in the first three chapters of Genesis. Every time he made something, he said, that's good. That's beautiful. The first time he said, this is not good, is he said, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man to be completely independent. And then we ruined everything because we wanted to be independent. And we think of, oh, yes, and then the curses came. The curse came for the women that it was going to be very difficult for them to have children. And the curse for the men was that there were going to be thorns and and so forth and life was going to be hard. But I wonder if that was the greatest curse because to me this was the greatest curse. The greatest curse was God said, you want to be independent? Go on. And I'm going to put an angel here. And you're not going to be able to get back to me. He's going to keep you out. You want to be independent? And for human history, every murder, every lie, every somebody that has stolen, the bitterness, the anger, the bad marriages, the divorces, whatever it is in all of human history has been because we said, I want to be independent. And here comes the good news. God said, I'm going to actually allow them to come back in. But I can't do that without somebody paying the ultimate price. And I'm going to send my one and only son. And they're going to spit at him. They're going to pull his beard out. They're going to laugh at him. They're going to put him on a tree. But he's going to be the one that will make us once again interdependent. We seek as Christians here at All Saints deep, thick relationships where we come together and we stay with each other through thick and thin, where we come together and we grow old together. But there's one burden that you cannot bear. There's one burden that you can't bear for somebody who is caught in sin. And that is the burden of being reconciled to God. And thank God that burden has already been taken on the cross by Jesus Christ. And so when I get to, with my brothers every Tuesday morning and we cry over what's going on in our lives, our children, or whatever it is, we know I cannot bear the weight of your sin but I can point to somebody who can. And I can pray to you because he can. And who is this person? Paul writes about him in just a couple of books over in Colossians that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we do look beyond these four walls and this ceiling to know that we are in your presence and that you call us as Christians to be in each other's lives so that we can see when somebody is asleep in the light 
who thinks everything's okay, but, but they're absolutely caught. Help us here at All Saints to be those that are radically hospitable, that we don't want anything back. We don't need reciprocity because we are doing only what you have done in laying down your life for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.